comics, movies, music, video games, technology, Blu-ray, television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. together from remote galaxies are some of the most sinister podcasters of all time the long box of doom dedicated to a single objective the conquest of the comic book universe Hey everybody and welcome to episode 258 of the Long Box of Doom podcast. I'm Jordan from Jersey and I'm joined tonight by Mr. Jim Dietz. How are you doing, Jim? It is book clobbering time. <laughs> yeah, welcome back to Fantastic February! Well, it was the first time we recorded this. Yeah, so here's the deal, everybody. First off, uh, Fantastic February was always going to be, but now it's happening in this episode instead of the next one, expanded into Fantastic 14. Uh, however... We'd, we've already recorded this episode once, and then we had the weirdest audio problem probably we've ever had, and we've had some weird ones over the time, over the years. I think uh, Jordan's computer was hit with cosmic rays. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Causing it to mutate wildly. If we recorded uh, for an hour and a half, my file, for some reason, ended up being about 45 minutes long, and not the first 45, or a middle 45, or the end 45. It would just jump ahead 30 seconds every couple minutes. It was the weirdest audio problem ever, which is why, and because we love you, we're re-recording this to continue the Fantastic 14 series now uh, of Jonathan Hickman's Fantastic Four. Uh, in the first episode, you'll remember we covered Dark Reign, Fantastic Four, issues 1 through 5, and then uh, Fantastic Four issues 570 and 571 and 572. This time we're starting off with 573, and we'll see how far we get. There's a lot of issues to get through, and we'll fit in as many as we can this episode. The Jonathan Hickman run on Fantastic Four cannot be contained to one month. No, Especially no. not the shortest month of the year. So. We're doing our best to contain it to 2014. We'll, we'll see yeah. how we do. Yeah, well, there's a lot there. So, Jim, what's up with Action Lab Comics these days? Well, there is something I would like to promote very blatantly. <laughs> if you're listening to this, and it's uh, between March 7th and March 9th... Of what year? To, of 2014, Thank I'm you. sorry. <laughs> I, I just presume someone will be listening to this this year, but you're uh, right. This, be, this is a time normal. capsule for future generations. I understand. Someday you'll be passing these down to your children. Yes, there was this thing called the internet once. It was very exciting. And then the cloud burst. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, if you go to Comixology this weekend, this uh, as we're recording this, from March 7th to March 9th of 2014, any digital number one issue of anything uh, from Action Lab or Action Lab Danger Zone is only going to be 50 cents. Wow, I've never seen anything for 50 cents on uh, Comixology, and that's not me doing a canned, that's amazing, I- I've never seen anything less than 99 cents, I don't think. Yeah, all the, for, all the number one issues, so if there's a series you would like to just try out, you know, check out. Out 
of the first issue of. It's almost like uh, with a crack dealer, you get the first taste for free. And that's when we hook you and bring you in. Only in this case, it's not for free. It's 50 cents. And you don't get a terrible cocaine addiction. So, And every every issue after that is only 99 cents as well. So, um, You guys are not, doing it right, sir. It's a lot cheaper than than, than uh, you know crystal meth habit or something. So you know, and it probably to... probably I can't guarantee based on your place of work, but probably won't get you fired or rot your teeth out. Well, unless you just forget to brush because <laughs> you're reading so much. But uh, every every number one issue that Action Lab and Action Lab Danger Zone has is only going to be fifty cents uh, starting Friday. Uh, I think Friday morning, Friday like six a.m., seven a.m. Uh, all weekend long. Uh, that'd be March 7th, March 8th, and March 9th, uh, we're going to be running this special. So for 50 cents, you can try out any Action Lab title you'd like. You know, try out an all-ages title for, you know, from like Skyward or Princeless or something a little more adult like uh, Double Jumpers or our brand new Dry Spell that just came out. Uh, that includes our debut issues from this month, too. So oh, wow. check it out. Any, you guys any are number doing one. it right. I, I, I can't get around that. You guys are just doing it right. We're just trying to do the best we can. You know, we have a lot of good books, and we want to get the word out there. And we have a lot of really cool creators with a lot of cool books. So, um, you know, this is a this is a good way to 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 get the word out there and to have people try out our stuff. And I think you know, once they're going to try it, they're going to like it, like they say on Yo Gabba Gabba. So uh, this weekend, March seventh, eighth, and ninth, fifty cent number one issues. Go to Comicsology. You want to use the the uh, when you check out, you want to use the code Action Lab, all one word, no caps. And any number one issue you have in your cart will be 50 cents. Very, very cool. And a fitting promotion for Fantastic 14. So, Jim, uh, before we even talk about Jonathan Hickman's Fantastic, Fantastic Four and FF run, they've uh, announced some casting for the upcoming Fantastic Four reboot. They have indeed. And uh, one, one of the things that was interesting in the press conference, they said that the story was going to be uh, closer to the ultimate Fantastic Four. Which I think we've known for a while, but this was probably yeah. the first like official, official announcement of that. That's true. I mean, well, even if you look at Whedon's Avengers, it takes a lot from the Ultimate Universe, you know. I mean, so, I mean, it's not really that, that uh, you know, big of a, uh, a surprise. But um, we get the, the casting of the four main characters, the Fantastic Four themselves. Uh, Kate Mara from House of Cards, which I just got done finish, uh, just finished the second season of. Great, great series. She was really good in it. Uh, will be Sue Storm, the Invisible Woman, which will be interesting because she's isn't she like um, naturally red haired and and uh, and, and uh, pale complected? Uh, yeah, but you can always. I mean, uh, Jessica Alba played her in the in the first. Yeah, I yeah. I guess this is closer. <laughs> I guess so. Uh, Miles Teller is uh, playing Reed Richards. Now, I, I've I know he's been in a few things. So. Yeah, I don't think I've actually seen any of the stuff he's been in, but all the trailers for those things, I always thought he seemed good in. Granted, those are just trailers, but uh, my, my limited uh, knowledge of him seemed good. And, and I echo your uh, enthusiasm for Kate Mara. I, I like her in just about anything, and I think she can pull off the the more badass-ness uh, of Sue Storm, which is often overlooked. Yeah, definitely. I really, like I said, when she was in House of Cards, she was fabulous, and I know her from that, at least. Uh, and then Michael B. Jordan, not the... Uh... Not the basketball player, but the actor uh, is playing Johnny Storm. And he's, of course, an alum of Josh Trank, who's writing and directing, as far as I know, this movie, who uh, also worked quite heavily with Mr. Michael B. Jordan in the movie Chronicle, in which he was very good in for the first half of the movie until he was no longer in the movie, which was a shame, because I think I liked him the most of the three leads. And I know him from The Wire. Um, He was really good in that. He played uh, Wallace in The Wire. 
Um, so I'm, I'm excited to see. I mean, I definitely think he could bring the Johnny, the Johnniness of Johnny, as it were. Although you, know, you got to admit, Chris Evans, even though those movies did have their flaws, I thought he was a really spot on Johnny Storm. So he's going to have a, like a you know a, a high bar to reach. Well, I mean, the ultimate Fantastic Four is so different that I, I think you, it'll be pretty easy to put a lot of distance between any previous portrayals. And then has Ben Grimm, Jamie Bell, probably best known for Billy Elliot, or uh, he also played Tintin in the uh, the big budget uh, Peter Jackson Spielberg version of The Adventures of Tintin, which I actually liked. I thought it was a good movie. I never saw it. I've never been a huge Tintin person. I haven't either, but it, it's on uh, it's on Netflix streaming. Oh, is it still? I should. I yeah, should and I had. It, I didn't think it would be too scary for my kiddos while they're you know running around the house. So. Also, married to Evan Rachel Wood, so uh, lucky dude. <laughs> no doubt. But that's the cast, and uh, I could totally, I could totally see that. I mean, he he's used to working. I now, I don't know if they're going to go digital or, or prosthetic with um, Ben Grimm. You know what I mean with the rocks. I'd almost think after the way the Chickless thing turned out in the last one, they would want to go digital. I, I, or at least some mix. Hopefully at least there's eyebrow ridges. There's not. I, I know a lot of people have very strong feelings about this casting, um, many of them very loudly and very negatively. But for me, my biggest concern, honestly, is just are they going to have eyebrow ridges? Because that was missing sorely in the <laughs> first two. I guess all, all, all I really care about is, are we going to get a good Fantastic Four movie? I, I agree. I'm being facetious. And I, I agree. Chronicle Chronicle was a good movie. You know, I could de- and this is the same director, so it could definitely... Uh, I don't know. I'm looking forward to see what they do. Yeah, and honestly, you know, I know people aren't as excited about a ultimate version of the Fantastic Four. That said, we've already had the quote-unquote classic versions on screen twice, and I'm quite happy to see something very new and very different. Also, it sounds like it's going to be set in the 60s, um, which will be pretty cool. And hopefully the, the word I've been hearing is that the plan is for this to tie into the post Days of Future Past X-Men continuity and have Fox be able to have their own little Marvel Universe with a set in the past Marvel Universe which that, with a very early Fantastic Four and a very early X-Men. And I think there's a lot of really cool potential there and a way to keep them fresh and very different from the Marvel Cinematic Universe films, which I love, but having a different spin on everything like being set in the past is really cool. I think they're going to have to take a different tack from you know what Marvel Cinematic Universe or whatever is doing to differentiate themselves and really bring in an audience that is just going to be seen as another you know or not ripping it off but like a pastiche of it almost. But yeah, like I said, I'm interested in. Uh, it, it, I didn't know it was going to be a period piece, but I did hear from Mark Miller that they were going to try to tie it into the you know Brian Singer X Men continuity, which should be cool. Mm-hmm. So Jordan, explain New World. <laughs> <laughs> in 50 words or less. 50 words? Okay. Rich billionaire genius Ted Castle built a new Earth on the other side of the universe um, because this Earth was dying, in his opinion. You know, we're just trashing it. They called because it New science. World. Eventually turned out that Ted and Alyssa, his wife who's uh, Reed's old college ex-girlfriend, 
They, they only really wanted the rich, famous, and smart to be on this new planet, this new Earth, new world. And that was going to be a problem. So that's New World. Now, it gets a little bit more complicated, and this is all, we should say, from the Miller-Hitch run is where these concepts were introduced. And Hickman does his best to tie up everything that's in there. It's probably my least favorite part of the run because it's not his from whole cloth, but he does interesting things with it. It gets more complicated because, separate from New World, you had another storyline from the Hitch-Miller run, which was... Hey, that Earth that was being ruined, that Ted Castle's all worried about, well, yeah, it gets totally ruined about 500 years in the future, and everybody on the planet is starving, etc. There's a whole bunch of problems. So the future Avengers, the future heroes of that world, grab Galactus from the future. They turn him into a battery, basically, to power a time machine to send them back in time, at which point they're going to then bring everybody from the future back to present-day Earth and basically reclaim it, saying... Hey, you guys, we already know you had your chance and failed, so we're going to come back and we're going to do it right this time. So Reed you know, and, and the Fantastic Four know this is going to happen, and they relocate the destination of the time travel from Earth to New World. So now all these future versions and, and descendants of Marvel heroes are across the universe on this planet of New World living out their lives instead of killing us all here, which is preferable. <laughs> presumably. And uh, with issue 573, which is where we're going to start tonight, um, this is the first major, there might have been a mention or two earlier on in the Hickman run of New World, but this is the first major interaction between the Fantastic Four and New World, uh, written by Hickman. I think it might have been a few more than 50 words, but... I think I got the description of New World in under 50 words, but then I went to the whole future Avengers and everything. Well, and and now Reed's old girlfriend is a brain in a jar... (laughs) <laughs> in a spider jar. In a spider, spider-like jar, and uh, her boyfriend kind of looks like uh, a cross between Buck Rogers and Jesus, and they're, <laughs> and they're running across New World because uh, all this messing around with the space-time continuum has caused a singularity, and space-time is buckling around them. Yeah, and we um, should mention, when we left, left the Fantastic Four in 572, Johnny and the Thing, Ben Grimm, were going on vacation to New World. And Franklin and Valeria Richards, the children of Reed Richards and Sue Storm, they hitched a ride, unbeknownst to their parents, uh, to New World with them. And this whole story is now being told in flashback by one of the children, we'll later see it's Franklin, to his mother, uh, Sue Storm. So we at least know the children are going to be safe uh, right from the from the outset. Well, that's always comforting. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but what, like uh, like Jordan said, Ben and Johnny were out going off to vacation thinking it's going to be you know, a paradise planet, and instead all this time has passed and it's become a, a barren, you know, post-apocalyptic wasteland with all these different factions fighting one another, including a giant Ultron robot uh, that they uh, they bypass. And it's cool that uh, they're running, you know, they're, they're running, they're making their way through the ground troops shooting, you know, down androids and stuff, but uh, you realize that the big, you know, gray hill to their left isn't a hill at all, but the heel of this giant, like, Titan Ultron robot. Yeah, what was this Ultron's deal? This is Alex Ultron, and he's, uh, like, the son of Ultron, essentially, or a future, future, future iteration of Ultron? I don't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, I think it was, he said, I don't either. I, I, I think it's like the the DC equivalent would be like Brainiac 5, you know. Okay. It's like the next evolution of you know, Ultron 5.0 or 6.0. It's like uh, moving on, you know. And Alex, I think they took the name Alex from Alexander the Great because they wanted to conquer. 
Gotcha. So it's around this time after this fight or during this fight that Ben, Johnny, and the kids show up through the portal that uh, that leaves them on New World. And th- this is a problem because uh, the people on New World can't open the portal back to Earth, so they've been unable to get a message to the Fantastic Four or anyone of, hey, black hole, everything's progressing weird. And so what's only been a couple weeks on uh, in the 616 has been years on New World. And now Johnny, Ben, and the kids are trapped there without uh, some specific parts that they're going to need to get. And Ted Castle's freaking out because uh, Reed Richards is not with him. Right. To, to help him figure out the problems. So, more Ultrons attack. Uh, everybody scatters. Ben gets captured by the Ultrons, but Johnny and the kids, uh, with Ted Castle and uh, Alyssa Moy, they make it back to Ted Castle's lab. And we get, some, we get some catching up on some of the other characters that were introduced in the Hitch run. There's uh, Natalie X, who's their Omnipath, who's been sedated and docile, and most, and we, we learn that most of the people on New World sleepwalk through their lives um, because their, their brain patterns are kind of being monitored and controlled by her. Uh, some of the other major characters we, we see here, we have uh, their... I guess she's a, a telepath, telekinetic. I forget it's off the top of my head. Her name is Psionics, probably the worst 90s-slash-aughts-esque character name ever, but hey, her name is Psionics. It sounds more like a power name, but whatever. Uh, Alex Ultron, of course. You've got Lightwave, uh, one of the Heralds of Galactus. It's a whole lot of fun stuff. And then you see that Ben Grimm, as he's uh, imprisoned in Alex Ultron's fortress, who's in the next cell but Banner Jr. Now, this isn't Scar, son of Hulk. No. No, this is what, a clone a clone of Banner? I believe this is... Or his t- son, one of his sons from the Old Man Logan run? I th- exactly. I believe it's one of his incestuous sons from that uh, from that particular timeline. Because it's also, of course, written by uh, Mark Miller. Mark Miller, right. And he, he, tries to t- he does tend to tie things together. As does Hickman, which is mm-hmm. fun. I've always enjoyed that. If you're reading multiple Hickman books, if you're reading, reading multiple Miller books set in the same universe, there's a good chance that certain concepts and characters are going to bleed through, and it gives a nice sense of cohesion. Well, the kids in Ted Castle go to uh, the Wheel, which is at the very center of New World, and it's the uh, control center for everything that's going on up, uh, you know, up above. Uh, Castle says, you know, there's no way you know he could explain to a little girl, and uh, uh, Valeria, you know, has a little gigaw that she brought with her from the Baxter Building that'll be the power source that he needs, and uh, he realizes that this is more than just a little girl. As she tells him, "Promise me you won't tell anyone," but I'm already smarter than my dad. So, you know, she can help him with the calculations that he needs to do what he has to do. And let's remind folks, uh, Valeria's three. She might rarely look at, uh, she usually looks more like seven in these books. That said, remember, she's three. She's smarter than her dad. Effectively, as far as I'm aware, making her the smartest person in the Marvel Universe. And I'm totally okay with that because she's awesome. And my three-year-old now uh, is obsessed with (laughs) Spider-Man. As any good three-year-old should be. Uh, so Johnny goes to rescue Ben while this is all going on. And I love this moment, uh, you know, flashing back to at the wheel with Ted and the kids uh, after Valeria gives that whole speech of, uh, you know, I'm smarter than my dad. You have a moment of Ted Castle sitting down next to Franklin as Valeria is working out the cal- calculations uh, to open the portal and, and get everybody home safe. Uh, Franklin offers Ted Castle a sandwich and it's a nice little character moment it's uh, six words on one page, four panels, and it says almost everything you'd ever need to know about Franklin. 
Well, I mean, plus, you know, the whole theme of this is that Valeria is the head and Franklin's like the soul or the heart, you know, and this kind of, you know, this act of kindness kind of shows that in a, you know, metaphorical way. You know, Valeria is using her brain and he's using his heart by reaching out, giving, you know, giving this guy this, you know, gesture of kindness when he really needs it. And he really does. And it's, it's oh, just yeah. nice to see this adult being like, thank you. Like, it's such a sincere, sincere moment. So Johnny is breaking into the fortress while this is going on with uh, Alyssa Moy, the, ro- the, the robot-bodied, spider-body brain in a jar. It's a lot like those monks from Jabba's Palace in Return of the, uh, <laughs> Return of the King, Return of the Jedi, uh, if you want a visual. Um, when all of a sudden... Her brain pod gets smashed open, and we see, hey, it's Psionics with the weird name and the super long torso, for some reason, in this panel, stomping on <laughs> the brain of Alyssa Moy. And you're right about that being, like, 90s odd. I mean, even their costume, I mean, it's that garish purple with the, and the only, when the bare midriff. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like, oh, this looks like an Image Comics character from the 90s. So a fight's about to break out, it looks like, between Johnny and Ben and Psionics when, from off-panel, comes Banner Jr. breaking out of his cage, at first appearing to just completely shatter Psionics' jaw as you see blood fly. But I love how in the inset panel, it's not just her jaw is gone. She is a body and then a giant puddle of blood on the ground. It's like a big wet mess where her head head used to be. Clean up on aisle five. And this panel is great with all the speed lines. And like the force perspective of uh, of Banner's Banner Junior's fist, and then her flying back, you know, toward the the viewer in the panel. It's just, I don't know. I liked it. I, I realized, like I said, the proportions off with his feet and everything, but uh, it looks cool. And so Johnny and Ben make it back to uh, the wheel, and we get some little interstitials. And this is going to continue uh, throughout the next couple of issues, or, or it, it interspersed every couple of issues, and uh, we'll probably get through all of the little cuts uh, tonight. But this is the the narration from Franklin to his mother, and he reveals that Ted Castle had to stay behind. No one else could do his job. He got the kids and everybody back safe, but only he could pilot the world. And we get the little interstitials about the other characters, and as Franklin says, do you think think we'll ever see them again? The King of Light, uh, referring to Lightwave. Uh, The Green Man, referring to Banner Jr. And the Captain of the Ship, referring to Ted Castle. And Sue says she doesn't know. Uh, but she tells Franklin that tomorrow it's after midnight. It's 12.03, as we can see on his little iPod dock there. She says, you know what that means, don't you? It's my favorite day of the entire year. Happy birthday, Franklin. I really like the way he breaks it down to, like, characters in a fairy tale. Yes. I mean, the captain of the ship, the lord of light, the green man, you know. It's kind of, uh, you know, definitely told, told from a child's perspective. 574, we're told on the cover, the future must be avoided at all costs. I love this cover in general. Uh, you've got Spider-Man front and center, web swinging through the city, with Franklin uh, riding on Spider-Man's back, Johnny right on top of him, flying behind him, and uh, and the rest of the Fantastic family in the Fantastic Car as they travel through New York. It's just an awesome kinetic image. Yeah, it's a nice cover. So we start with Franklin's birthday. Happy birthday, Franklin. We see it on the wall. And uh, Valeria has been sent by his mom to get Franklin and bring him uh, to his birthday party. And they get to the main uh, common room and no one's there until whoosh, surprise, everybody's there to wish Franklin a happy birthday, including Valeria, who says a word I don't generally like to say, but since it is kind of important in this issue, she says, happy birthday, retard. And I I guess the assumption is that... uh, Everyone was shielded by Sue's uh, force fields to keep them from being able to see him. 
right. him, him for me to see them rather. Right. When your mom's the invisible woman, everywhere is a surprise party. <laughs> and uh, the last issue in this one are both uh, uh, illustrated by Neil Edwards, by the way. Right. We should give him um, his due. We get this cool uh, establishing double page spread of everybody at the party who we're going to be seeing a lot of or some of these characters, uh, you know, over the course of the story, you know, including Leech and uh, Dragon Man and uh, Bentley. Artie, Alex Power. Right. Who's the kid Alex in the Power. black hoodie? Is that the younger Power's brother? I think so. What's his name? I can't remember off the top of my head. Ooh, you got me, buddy. I don't you, know. You've even got Herbie behind the cake. Yeah, just, it's, it's cool. It's not just a birthday. You know, it's also kind of setting up some new, some characters we're going to be seeing quite a bit of. Yes, to bring back my catchphrase from the last Fantastic uh, February slash 14 episode, hey, guess what? It's going to be important. All these characters that you're seeing here, pretty much with the exception of, like, one, maybe? Maybe two? They're going to be majorly, majorly important in this run later on. It's uh, Jack Power, by the way. Jack Power. Right, because cool he greets Katie and Jack, because he knew Alex was already going to be there. So they blow out the candles on the cake, and uh, Franklin gets to make a wish, and uh, we have the different characters running around, and, and Reed Richards goes over to Alex Power and just talks to him about school and how, you know, Alex is a genius and he's feeling kind of bored at school, everything, everything's just not working out for him. Reed says, I've got a special project coming up, and he asks, how would you feel about coming to work with me? Guess what? It's going to be important. In the future, it might be setting a foundation for something that's going to be going on. <laughs> um, Sue offers Bentley some cake, and uh, he says, 32. And then she says, why don't you focus on one, one piece at a time, honey? <laughs> I'm 32, not Bentley. Right. He says he has to earn the right to take the name Bentley because he's a, a flawed uh, failure of his father. So, A clone of the wizard, Bentley Whitman. Right. And she tells him, enjoy your cake, Bentley. Until then, 32 wants the corner piece. <laughs> Even evil clones know which piece of cake is best. Uh, at that point, Ben Grimm makes an announcement. Hey, attention, everybody. We got a special guest this year, and it's Spider-Man! Except it's really Willie Lumpkin in a very ill-fitting Spider-Man suit, but in a nice bit of kind of slapsticky physical comedy. The kids all yell, that's not Spider-Man! And we see the real Spider-Man, Peter Benjamin Parker, spoilers, uh, is on Ben Grimm's back, and uh, it, it's a nice bit of uh, physical comedy as Ben Grimm pretends that he doesn't know where Spider-Man is, and he keeps turning around looking for him and asking for the kids to point him out. It's very blues cluesy, and uh, I enjoyed it. And he asks uh, Franklin if he wants to go for a ride. And swings, swings him around the back of the inside of the Baxter building. Yep, because Spider-Man is awesome. Uh, Franklin then calls everybody to attention and says, Hey, you know, I don't really need gifts. I've got all kinds of cool stuff, but... I thought it'd be cool if I gave everybody a gift this year. And uh, the first one he gives is to Spider-Man, and he tells him he got some help from uh, his Uncle Johnny, and we see that it is a loser's guide to picking up women. What can I say, man? I'm a giver, says Johnny. Frenemies. <laughs> Forever. And, and <laughs> we won't get to it this, uh, this episode, I'm sure, because it's much later in the run. But some of the stuff they do with Johnny and, uh, and, and Peter is just hilarious. Uh, next up, we have... Uh, a key for Leech, uh, and they explain to him they'll be staying in the room next to Franklin if he wants to. There's also a present for Artie, which gives him back his power to visualize, uh, make you know, visual representations of what he's thinking. 
Yeah, uh, Artie lost his powers in M Day, if I remember correct- correctly, mm-hmm. and he's mute. So his only way of communicating was taken away from him, which was th- those visual projections. So now he has a mechanical means of doing it. We should also say Leech's ability, of course, is to neutralize any mutant powers in proximity to him, which is very helpful for Franklin, being one of the world's most powerful mutants ever. Having Leech around keeps his powers in check, and and Ar- uh, Artie is also given a key to live at the Baxter building. It's cool to see an issue with, like, all these cool character parts in it, you know. We get to see, like I said, you know, the front of me, uh, Johnny, Johnny Storm and Spidey, you know, Ben, ben isn't his angst-filled stuff, he's kind of loose, and then we get this moment with Reed and Sue, where things are kind of, you know, getting, uh, you know, more back to normal between them as well. Where he tells her, you look amazing for a son who just turned, and she goes, not another word, which is not only a funny joke, but also a funny reference to the fact that Franklin's age in the Marvel Universe is forever changing. Right. Well, I mean, the carry. I mean, if they were, you know, at age naturally, they'd all be in their what sixties by now, right? <laughs> He'd be older than I am, I think. When, when was he introduced? Uh I think in the seventies. It was after oh, yeah. Stan Lee had left. So. He, he'd definitely be older than me. Yeah. Uh, we then g- cut to later, and there is an anomaly that has caused the condition red to go off. Time we, quake condition red. And we see a, a guy in a, uh, a full body suit. Kind of looks like a still suit from uh, from Dune. <laughs> with the beard and the ponytail. He says, the clock is running, and here comes company, and sure enough, there are the uh, Fantastic Four there to uh, to you know, defend their home. Because, I mean, everybody breaks into the Baxter building. They're ready, you know. But he's ready for them, and he puts up some type of barrier that even Sue, Reed, and Ben, and Johnny together can't get through. An invisible force field of some sort. Mm-hmm. Hmm, who else can do that? Franklin wakes up, uh, says, what's going on? And um, he... This uh, mystery figure has some sort of energy emanating from his hand, and we can't hear, but he says something to Franklin, and Franklin falls to the ground. A- after Franklin is levitated by this energy ball of some type. Right. Then uh, Sue reacts as a mother does, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, if there's the rest of my life I'm going to find you, I'm going to find you and make you wish you'd never been born. Which is going to be funny later. It's very ironic, <laughs> at the very least. So then our mystery figure travels down the hall, still separated from the Fantastic Four, and goes to Valeria's room. He tells her it's all right, he's not going to hurt her, and he says he was sent to find her to give her a warning. The future must be avoided at all costs. And we get, as he tells her the next bit of information, the backgrounds are stripped away, and so we don't have her room, but we have what appear to be uh, crayon illustrations of what he's telling her. It's a very strange choice at the moment. Uh, Of course, it'll make much more sense later. And he tells her, listen closely, because each word I say was chosen carefully. It is just for you, Val. No one else can know this. There will be a war between the four cities. The dead must not be forgotten. The future man must return to save the past. And all hope lies in doom. Right, and as you say, the crown drawings behind him, we see um, Namor. (laughs) We see a giant blue city, which, uh, you know, is, of course, representative of, I guess, the Atlantean city we're going to be talking about soon. Uh, the four races by, uh, represented by four different colors. So he's, like, putting some subtle foreshadowing into, you know, what's going to be happening in the comic in these crayon drawings. And even, like, a crayon timeline with some of the alternate reads. Right. And uh, a Vitruvian Man, which is probably a reference to uh, Hickman's Shield, which will be wrapping up later this year if everything goes according to plan. And, of course, uh, Val says, why should I believe you? And he says, because you are the one who sent me here. And then as he's about to leave, Val follows after him. She says, hey, happy birthday, retard. And he gives her a wave 
and then he disappears. By her saying that, she has deduced who he is. Yeah, I guess we can say at this point, this is Franklin Richards himself from the future. future it's going to be important. And uh, from, from now on, just to keep everything clear, if, we're ta- if we say Franklin, we're probably talking about Kid Franklin. If we say Mr. Franklin or future Franklin, we're talking Mr. Ponytail. He's awesome. He'll be important later, just like just about every other element of this issue and most of the others. After all of that, we uh, come back later. They're all sitting, they're all in the kitchen, you know, having, you know, cookies and milk or whatever after what had gone on, comparing notes. The kids are in bed. Reed had read every test he could think of on them. It doesn't appear to be anything wrong. Franklin checks out better than ever, actually. Um, so he, they surmise that we got lucky. Uh, we then cut to Valeria's room where she, behind a portrait uh, on her wall, has started uh, uh, writing a lot of equations, much like her father does in his white, you know, whiteboard room. And then on the next page it says, and even later that evening, and we, we get a cut back to when Mr. Franklin uh, levitated younger Franklin and told him something that we couldn't quite read, and we see that what he told him was rest and remember what you are. And the captions tell us, all alone in his room... A little boy creates a baby universe, and we see Franklin Richards with a tiny Milky Way galaxy or a spiral galaxy of some type emanating between his fingertips, and it's uh, revealed in full that Franklin's powers, which had been so long ago deadened on purpose by his parents to keep him from destroying the world and or the Marvel Universe uh, with more onslaught-type events, they're back. And guess what? It's going to be important. Yeah. And that ends issue 574. Happy birthday. Uh, issue 575 we can tell just from the cover this is going to be a mole man centric issue and we're told there is chaos in the underworld Uh, this issue we're returning back to Dale Eaglesham pencils and uh, we start off with some mole men crawling out of the sewers next to the Baxter building Uh, they're covered in some tattered robes it's very post-apocalyptic looking Uh, they try to dodge a truck and two of the three make it. The third one is hit quite badly. And so one of the other two grabs his head right off his body with an audible pop and takes him along with him into the lobby of the Baxter building. The, uh, the Moloids say they bring a message from the Mole Man to the fantastic numbered four. And he says, well, what's the message? And he says, please clear the lobby. <laughs> As a giant hand comes rumbling through the ground and riding on the tongue of a giant subterranean beast comes... The Mole Man. And I love, you got this giant, almost two-page spread of him in the mouth of this creature with the Fantastic Four at the ready. There's some more Moloids, etc. And then you have this inset panel, which is a, you know, maximum close-up pretty much of his face and the detail level of his yeah. face, the shadow work, the line work, the wrinkles. It's, it's not quite Alex Ross, but it's really close and it's yeah. got some nice character to it. Eaglesham is amazing. I really loved him on this run and on his run at JSA. He was really great. And there's that one little dot of red in the in the mole man's visor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, for, from you know the reflection of his eye, I suppose. Just you know, a little, like you said, attention to de- detail. Really good stuff. It's really nice. I mean, I know some people. I think Russ has said, and, and I kind of agree with him. Reads a bit too buff when Eaglesham draws him. But aside from that, man, this is just gorgeous. Hey, man, if I could stretch my body to any, sh- any shape, I would make myself buff. So. I'd probably make myself look like Barney just to freak people out. Mm. <laughs> uh, so they're told by the Mole Man there's chaos in the underworld. He needs their help. And uh, we see that that uh, decapitated Mole Man 
is, or Moloid, I keep saying Mole Man, but Moloid is uh, perfectly fine. Apparently Moloids can live without their heads, or live without their bodies, rather, I guess if you want to be more technically. And uh, they're told, hey, there's a problem. You've got the High Evolutionary. He built this city underground, powered by an ascension engine that was supposed to uh, radically evolve creatures, because that's the High Evolutionary's whole thing, hence his name, of course, the High Evolutionary being Herbert Wyndham, for anybody who doesn't remember. So he built this Darwin bubble under, underground, he built this city, he's trying to mutate his kind of uh, Island of Dr. Moreau-esque uh, uh, animal-human hybrids even further than he's done in the past, but everything went wrong. Uh, the Ascension Engine didn't evolve people or creatures, it devolved them. And so the High Evolutionary and his men, uh, his new men rather, were forced to flee the city, but they failed to deactivate the machine before they did so. And after this, some Moloids were kind of walking around, they discovered the city, and, you know, they're curious, curiosity killed a cat, they made their way inside, and were quickly devolved. And it turns out the Moloids, when they devolve, actually kind of resemble... Uh, a human, uh, a human, uh, not just a humanoid, but maybe a Homo erectus, Homo sapien, a little bit earlier than Homo, sa homo sapien, probably. But it evolved their brains, it just devolved their bodies. Kind of a strange effect of the machine. And this has created all kinds of problems, because now they consider themselves superior to the Moloids, they don't want to go back to Moloid culture. Moloids are joining them in droves, but their children, when they're born, look just like classic Moloids. They still retain the intelligence of the Ascension Engine uh, devolved Moloids, but they look like their old selves, and that leads them to be cast off by this new society and generally mistreated. And there's a little bit of discussion, which I enjoy, of... Hey, yeah, that sucks, but are they any better as slaves to you? And uh, in the moment, the moment doesn't quite take to that, and he thinks uh, the way they're treating the children makes it makes it even worse than what he would do. At least they have a purpose, and at least they're treated well as his slave-ish creatures. So they agree to help the Mole Man. They take kind of a... It looks kind of like a submarine, but a, a floating ship deep below the crust of the Earth, where they pass by the dead body of Galactus, buried deep within the Earth. This is, of course, the future Galactus that those future Avengers had used as a, a battery to power their time machine and come back in time, and Reed hid it underground so that Galactus wouldn't come across it and get all pissy. Because that would be understandable. <laughs> If you see your own corpse laying around, you might want to ask a few questions. <laughs> hey, guys. Uh, That's a lot of continuity uh, to explain to Galactus. He doesn't have, like, a lot of patience. <laughs> and I believe this panel is a direct... Uh, I don't, uh, lifting would be the wrong term, because that, that implies something negative, but a direct reference to an earlier panel from the Miller-Hitch run, I believe, back from when Reed had originally uh, hidden the body there. So they make their way to Subterranea, it's kind of a cool uh, journey to the center of the Earth, the original style design. Lots of bright neon colors, stalactites, stalagmites, giant ants, uh, and, and moloids riding them, etc. They make their way deeper and deeper and deeper, and they continue that discussion about, you know, whether it's better, better to be free and terrible, or a slave and at least care for your young. It's, it's kind of ironic, I think, that the two most... Um... You know, non-human-looking members of the crew, uh, Ben Grimm and the Mole Man, are having this discussion. Yeah, you know, yeah. This no philosophical thing. discussion is, you know, uh, this other race, you know, of devolved beings, you know, whether they're better off as slaves or whatever. It's just, I just thought it was interesting. So they get to the gates of the city, 
which is a giant crevasse in the rock wall with two giant statues of the High Evolutionary on either side. It reminds me of that temple from, I believe it's um, Last Crusade. Do I have the right Indiana Jones movie in my head? Hmm. It's a temple that's been used in a lot of movies. I think it's in one of the Transformers movies. It's a real place. A temple might not even be the right nomenclature, but old building is kind of designed like this. The statues of High Evolutionary actually remind me of the the, the, uh, giant statues in Lord of the Rings. Oh, sure. Uh, Or Thor as well. Yeah. Uh, so Ben tells him, hey, you guys are going to have this covered while you go turn off the machine. Uh, I've got something i got to do. And he jumps out of the Fantastic Car, not even the Fantastic Car, but their, uh, their current subterranean ship. And he leaps into the city where he quickly devolves himself and starts to look like a very ape-inspired The Thing. And he asks one of the Moloids there, one of the devolved Moloids, where are the children? And he's told, we keep the animals in their pens on the underside of the city, and he goes in search of them. And he finds three young Moloids, who again, super intelligent, because they've been evolved by the Ascension Engine, but they look just like classic Moloids. And Ben takes them in his arms, and he rescues them from their pens. And he says, you know, where is everyone else? And they say, they're all that's left. Yeah. Um, and he pulls them out of there. Um, he almost looks like he has a fro. <laughs> kind of like a, rock, like a rock fro. His his cranium has expanded so right. much that it's right. Uh, now that I've said that, you won't be able to unsee it. <laughs> it really does kind of look like that. I'm surprised they didn't throw in a sweet Christmas reference, but uh, that would have been a little out of place. Uh, so they go to turn off the machine, and it doesn't quite work. It seems the city is going to be raised. The city has a fail-safe, and it raises up through the crust of the Earth. The Earth seals below it. Apparently, that was part of the design. And suddenly, you've got this giant city in the center of the United States with a giant statue of the High Evolutionary right in the center of it. That must have been some contract for that job, huh? <laughs> and then we have uh, this little wrap-up page here, and we'll see this a few times in the next couple issues. And I like the way it's used, where it's basically just a, here's some bullet points to tell you what happened after the issue and before the next issue to wrap up some of the plot lines. And this one talks about how, you know, if you wear the right containment suits, you won't be affected by the Ascension engine, so that's good. And then about uh, diplomatic envoys from the United States government trying to open dialogues with the Forever City of the High Evolutionary, which is what it's called, mm-hmm. uh, negotiations breaking down, etc. And we're told at the end that after two weeks, the Moloid children who were rescued from the city show no signs of diminished intelligence. I mean, it's cool that he, he addresses these things and he keeps... You know, he explains, like, kind of the denouement here of what happened, because, like you keep saying, Jordan, it's important. It'll all, it's, play, it'll all play out later. I mean, it it's is all going of, to be important. It's all part of his meta story, man. Issue 576, which is where we're going next, has a cover with the Fantastic Four covered up in parkas and walking through the tundra. Now, my initial thought when I saw this cover was, oh, this is a direct reference to uh, G.I. Joe, Real American Hero, issue number two. After going back through my collection and actually looking at that cover, it is not. But it does remind me quite a bit of that issue, which was, oddly enough, one of the first comics I ever had as a kid. I picked it up at a yard sale. But, uh, yes, it does remind me of that quite a bit. Larry Hama, G.I. Joe, great stuff. Classic. Oh, yeah. And I just want to say at the beginning here, I like the way Eaglesham draws Sue. Yes. <laughs> I just do. So we're told, and we kind of join them uh, in media reis, as they say, in the middle of the story, 
uh, as Sue is giving a, essentially a PowerPoint presentation to the rest of the team, explaining what has happened um, before this issue started. She tells them, this picture, this is Vostok Station, which, by the way, is a real place for anybody who's playing along at home. It's a research facility built by Russian explorers in the 1950s. Its only remarkable trait being that it was the most isolated base in all of Antarctica, the only hotspot in a cold and unforgiving place. Jump forward to 1973 again, all still true, when radar imaging revealed the largest suspended body of water in the entire continent, some 13,000 feet beneath the surface. It's massive. Best estimates show the area to be somewhere around 6,000 square miles. Much more interesting than that, the point really is that Lake Vostok has been an isolated habitat for over 500,000 years. Any life that may have formed there will have followed a divergent but parallel evolutionary path from our own. So they've been so isolated, if there is something down there, that it was almost like a... um an oceanic Madagascar, if you will. You know, yes, it's been yes. isolated from any kind of outside influence. It's been like, a, it's its own little laboratory, kind of. And it's going to have a lot of water lemurs, apparently. Okay. For anyone who didn't grow up watching PBS, the, the type of creature known as a lemur, which is a type of primate, is indigenous only to Madagascar. They're making a whole movie about it, narrated by Morgan Freeman. It's a thing. Oh, anyway. I thought you were making a reference to that DreamWorks movie. Oh, Madagascar? Yeah. Well, I, there are lemurs in that as well. Oh, I've never no. seen that. One of the few movies I've ever fallen asleep during. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> I don't know. It, it did not hold my attention. But so we're told the scientists have been trying to drill down to that lake for a long, long time, uh, unsuccessfully. They've gotten some interesting core samples, interesting thermal data, but aside from that, nothing to show for their efforts. So four years ago, a select group of scientists won a grant from our primary research foundation and reprovided them with some next-generation scanning equipment, making high-resolution mapping of the underground lake from the surface possible. And after using it, they found something fascinating. There's some kind of superstructure at the heart of Lake Vostok. And as you can imagine, after that, we really got involved. Of course, this is where it diverged from uh, real <laughs> facts about Lake Vostok into uh, comic book stuff, but this is where it also gets particularly interesting. Well, it also seems that AIM has set up shop like five miles away because they too have noticed there's something down there. Uh, so not only is it you know an exploration, it's almost like a race to get there before AIM does. Yeah, well, AIM's been drilling down uh, diagonally from a few miles away, like you said, and uh, they think AIM's going to get through in the next couple days, so the Fantastic Four is going to head there and beat them to the punch. And there's also, some, again, some nice physical comedy here, as Ben keeps rocking on his chair while they're being told this, and by the end of the uh, discussion, he rocks over his chair so much that it falls over, and uh, his head goes right through the wall. Or, or See, now, I took, it that, I took it that Sue was giving him a little push. Because you see, like, the two lines that are on his heel. Like, I thought he was leaning back in the chair, but I thought Sue gave him a little push to knock him over. Oh, I like that interpretation of it as well. I don't know that I like either one more than the other, but I like both of them. Because she kind of looks back. I thought that was just, like, a little bit of her force field there pushing his heel. Very I mean, well I guess it could be a speed line of him just falling over a bit. And I love the look of pure joy on Johnny's face as he laughs at uh, Ben falling through the wall. Yeah. So four hours later... Uh, a ship branded with the Fantastic Four emblem lands at Vostok Station, and we see four inset panels of boots walking out of the uh, ship. And the fourth one is unlike the others because it is candy apple red with gold accented 
cowboy boots and a bare leg, and we see in the final panel on the page that all the Fantastic Four are bundled up in uh, hardcore parkas for if you uh, want some alternate Fantastic Four action figures, except Johnny Storm, who's in those cowboy boots, matching swim trunks, and is wearing his parka jacket around his shoulders. Well, of course, they have flames on them, too. I mean, that's like the... The real thing. They're red. I mean, they're bright candy apple red or whatever, but they're covered with flames. Yes. Yeah, it's harder to tell with the uh, boots, uh, but definitely the, definitely the shorts. <laughs> they are flaming. So they get, uh, they get to the research station. Uh, they're set aboard a submersible vehicle that's going to drift through the ice. They crash through, and we get a lot, a lot, you know, page after page of completely silent action as uh, they see various and sundry strange underwater creatures. Um, and formations, and then AIM bursts through the ice. Uh, some more creatures make their way towards them. A fight breaks out between the AIM scientists and the creatures underneath the sea, and the Fantastic Four join in the fight, of course, helping the creatures and fighting off AIM, because, hey, if you don't exactly know who this enemy of your enemy is, assume they're your friend. Um, they fight off AIM, and uh, they are taken by these creatures to a, uh, to a structure underneath the water, and they're also given kind of a babblefish-style crustacean that affixes to their helmets and lets them communicate with the creatures. Which is a good thing, or else it would have been a totally silent issue. Uh, yeah. <laughs> to it's point. a lot of gesturing. And I just have to say real quick, I think I might have mentioned this before, AIM are like the worst defenders of that whole Venture Brothers henchman thing about not being able to have peripheral vision. Because <laughs> that beekeeper helmet, I mean, come on, man. I'm sorry. It looks cool, though. Especially, uh, Hickman seems to have had a, a big hand with his artists in redesigning subtly the uh, the AIM helmet to make it a little bit more practical, a little bit more varied from different ranks of the uh, scientists, and just a little bit more cool-looking. Because he likes to use AIM a lot. Right, he has the whole AIM Island uh, subplot in Avengers. Right. There's even characters, I don't think we've met them yet, but there are AIM scientist characters who are introduced in Fantastic Four and FF that will carry on to his Avengers run. I think I remember that. Which is really cool. Like, just minor scientist characters that are a little bit of, uh, you know, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern comic relief, but they carry over, which is really cool. So they're brought into this room that is uh, very clearly a throne room, and they are told, I am Ul Uhar, Regent of the Peak, King of the Uhari, Welcome to the Kingdom of Atlantis. Of course, we're quickly told Atlantis is basically just a general term for the sea uh, by these creatures. Uh, but there are three ruling families here. There are the uh, the ones that look like catfish, the ones that look like eels, and the ones that look like crustaceans. Yes, exactly. And even though there's three species, three main ruling species, uh, in a time of crisis, one of them is chosen to step up and speak for everyone. And so they need the humans to do the same exact thing. They need someone to speak for man. And Reed starts to tell me that's just not the way these things work. You know, humans don't work like that. There's a lot of societies up here. And from off panel, we see the words, I will. And as we flip the page, Sue Storm steps up and says, I will be the voice of man. And she tells Reed, you know why it has to be me. And of course, astute readers will realize that's because when you're dealing with underwater stuff, Namor's going to be involved. And who better to deal with Namor than Susan Storm? Well, these guys are going, going around saying they're king of, uh, kings of Atlantis. I mean, Namor is going to obviously be... I mean, that's his whole shtick, Imperius Rex, you know, so he's not going to be real happy. So they give uh, Sue this really cool cape. 
uh, with crustaceans on the shoulders, and they give the proclamation, Susan of the Richards, Susan of the Storm, Envoy of Man, and Emissary of the Peak, return from where you came and spread the word. The old kings of Atlantis have returned. If ever we are needed, if ever there is cause for contact, there is one person with whom they need speak. And in these halls, her name will always echo out. And we have the, the caption at the end of the issue, I am Susan Richards, and I speak for all mankind. And again, we get another wrap-up page, just like in the last issue, um, just telling you some of the things about the different species, the names of the species, how many of them there are, etc. And uh, that soon after leaving Antarctica, Susan Richards took the first steps toward achieving what she hoped would be a peaceful assembly of all undersea cultures by contacting King Namor via Utopia. Namor has yet to respond. Now, this was during the whole Utopia thing with the X-Men where they were billing Namor as you know, the first mutant. So he's a big player in that storyline. Another cool Alan Davis cover here. Yeah, on issue 577 with the, uh, with the Inhumans front and center, which is always fun to see. Medusa and Black Bolt on the cover. And they're in space. We start off with uh, six months ago in, the, in Adeline in the blue area of the moon while Adeline was still on the blue area of the moon. And uh, Medusa with the royal family of Inhumans saying it's, it is time. And I love this panel. Beautiful. With the uh, Black Bolt with the Scepter and Lockjaw, Gorgon, Triton. And you see Maximus in the background there. And a uh, guy to the right who kind of looks like Mordrew from DC Universe. Purple robes, long white beard. Who we will be meeting later. Yes. And we're told this is a summoning as Black Bolt uh, takes the Scepter type device and jams it into the ground, releasing a signal. And then Adelan flies away. Then two months ago, we see the wizard-looking dude looking at a readout and saying closer as he sees different points moving closer to him on a map. And then we see yesterday as he continues to look at that, uh, that readout and the Watcher, Uwatu, is standing up over his shoulder and he's told by the wizard-looking dude, look up, Watcher, it is indeed a time of change. As a giant city-type ship, not Adelan, but very similar, rockets past them, and lands on the moon. Well, something I noticed in rereading this, you see the, sil- the silhouette of the wizard guy and the Watcher in the bottom left of the panel. Oh, yeah, yes, you And do. that gives you kind of a sense of scale, I mean, because the Watcher is pretty huge. I mean, it's just, it's, yeah, depending it, which, which artist is drawing him, but yeah, right. definitely a big dude. But, uh, yeah, just really, really cool shot with the earth in the background like that. And then we jump to uh, to the Baxter building, as Reed Richards is telling everyone, six hours ago, the ship landed on the dark side of the moon. Uh, we got to get there before anybody else, because we're the Fantastic Four, and that's what we do. And he asks them, who's up for a walk on the moon? 30 minutes later, the, uh, the Fantastic uh, Spaceship, or whatever they're calling it, I don't even think we're giving a name for it, is rocketing out of the top of the Baxter building towards the moon, and we get a nice inset panel of the four of them, just like old times, even Ben even points out, it looks a lot like a panel from uh, the original origin of the Fantastic Four as they head towards the moon. And it, it, I love the way he draws their, um, their spaceship coming into lunar orbit. Um, just the colors, even, just like really cool deep blues and purples. And I love their spacesuits. Again, some more uh, alternate action figure costumes. I love <laughs> right. the design of the four on it. Yeah, yeah. It's a very minimalist for, I like the way it's drawn, and I like its placement on the suit. The whole color scheme, it's very different. It's kind of a, a pale blue, uh, almost a periwinkle. It's just a nice color, especially in the way it, it relates to the color of the thing and their gloves, which are that same kind of burnt umber, orangey color as well. Yeah, it's just, I've always, I've always, you know, 
associated the Fantastic Four with that color, like of blue. You know, it just really now. I mean, now James Robinson has them all in red. Just kind of weird. It's, I'm not used to it yet. So uh, they they make their way up to the ship. They're trying to figure out how to get in, and uh, they they're told from uh, off panel, "Why don't you knock?" As uh, Sue gets tapped on the shoulder, and we see the wizard-looking dude again, and he introduces himself as Dal Damak, the Wayfinder. Uh, he is the summoner, the herald of a new age. Welcome to the Universal City. And uh, he brings them inside, uh, up to this weird-looking door. I believe this is his first appearance. It feels like a much older Kirby-designed character, but from as far as I know, this is his first appearance. This is the Inhuman Eldrak the Door, and this is a giant Inhuman. Uh, it is a big face that if you walk through the mouth, it will take you where you need to be. Kind of an existential-type deal there, but it works as teleportation and transport for the Inhumans and takes you where you need to be. So we're then given uh, a little snapshot of the origin of the Inhumans. Of course, they were early humans from the planet Earth that were experimented on by the Kree because the Kree are evolutionarily stagnant and uh, they were experimenting on other races to see what they could do to jumpstart their own evolution and get things moving again. But we're told everything you thought you knew was wrong, kind of. Yes, all that happened, but do you really think the Kree would just stop with one no, they tried this all over the place, not just with early humans. They traded all over the place, and they achieved success on five different planets. I guess once you start um, mutating the planet's indigenous species, it's like potato chips. You can't have just one. Or tattoos. I guess. Uh, they're told one race underwent isogenesis, another went through anthogenesis, then there's antigenesis and exogenesis. And of course, Marvel cosmic readers will be familiar with terogenesis, which is uh, the process that the Inhumans go through that we're familiar with. But these are the universal Inhumans. These are five races that were experimented on by the Kree. We never knew about them. They've been out in space. Uh, there's been a schism for a long time, but they have been summoned and they have returned and we're introduced to them in a, a big uh, two-page splash here, and uh, we have four main races. The Centurion Woro family, led by Matriarch Ula Udanta. We have the ruling Mord Council, presided over by the Badoon Queen, Aladi Koeki. We have uh, Onami White Mane, first chair of the Chimelian White Room. And then finally, we have the Goddess Avo, ruling the Dire Wraiths. So at least three of these are old-school Marvel cosmic races. Uh, the Chimelians, not exactly sure. They're horse-like. They look a lot like uh, Beta Ray Bill's people, but they're not the same. Those are like the Kelmarkians or something. It's another K word, but it's not Chimelians. I guess all, all horse-faced aliens look the same to you, huh? Yes, they all look like <laughs> aliens with horse faces. Um this race shows up again in Infinity, also written by Jonathan Hickman, where I believe their planet is completely destroyed and later rebuilt. Uh, spoilers. But, uh, yeah, so if it is a brand new race, they were introduced by him here, and they're used many times in the future by him as well. But definitely the Centurions, the Badoon, and well, the Dire Wraiths, you know, big-time Marvel Cosmic races. Yeah, Centurions were, and Badoon were both uh, introduced in the 70s in the original Guardians of the Galaxy run. Uh, because Yondu is... Uh, Yondu is a Centauri, correct. And the Badoon were the aliens that they were fighting that they banded together to fight in the original uh, Guardians of the Galaxy run in the 70s. And the Dire Wraiths were introduced in ROM, uh, Space Knight, uh, the com Bill Mantlow comic from the 80s. They were the, the evil aliens who took over you know, humans here on, that ROM was sent to fight. Now, so. um, Yondu, is his last name Udanta? 
I don't know. Or is it just similar? Because that's the last name of the queen here. I've just put two and two together. I wonder if she's an ancestor of his. It could be. But of course, they resemble their standard versions of people of the race, but they have various inhuman mutations, and they all have that black bolt tuning fork on their foreheads right. in one way or another. Or or most of them do, anyway. At least, at least they're matriarchs and patriarchs. Or in this case, they're all matriarchs. They are four queens for one king, of course, Medusa being the fifth queen. And we're told these are the universal inhumans. And uh, so, you know, they're talking to Reed and telling him, you know, they're, they're, this is during a portion of time in the Marvel Universe where Black Bolt was dead, and they're treating him as a very Messiah-like figure. I believe this is after War of Kings where uh, he, quote-unquote, died fighting Vulcan. But they're, they're kind of treating him as a Christ-like messianic figure who will return soon and, and reunite the peoples as foretold. They're going to be a new people in a new land. And Reed asks here on the blue area of the moon, and he's told, no, someplace better. And we see a, a number of hands pointing towards a window, and Sue says, oh no. And on the final page of the issue, uh, before the little wrap-up, we see everyone is pointing at Earth. We thought we would crash with you guys. Is that cool? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then, of course, we have that little wrap-up page where, again, we're given uh, the different species, their populations, and, and a uh, gender breakdown of all of those. Um, and then we're also told that there's this group called the Light Brigade. And guess what's going to be important later? And it's going to be awesome later, I should mention. The Light Brigade is an elite group comprised of the six greatest inhuman warriors. Each Light Brigade is formed to take part in a ritual called the Offering. The offering takes place once every generation. During the ceremony, the Light Brigade takes on an endless succession of trials in order to internally prove the worthiness of the Inhuman Collective. The offering ends with the death of the last living member of the Light Brigade, and no Light Brigade has ever survived longer than a year. It's like the alien version, the Inhuman version of uh, Battle Royale. Yeah, kind of. Uh, issue 578, we have Annihilus's dome smack dab on the cover, and the quote at the top of the issue is, Here you die, in the negative zone, you can live. Or Johnny thinks with his pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jim, tell me uh, and our listeners a little bit about Johnny Storm. He likes the ladies. He, You know, there was a time, yes, he likes the ladies. He's he's one of them straight people I keep hearing about. <laughs> He is a, he's a bit of a ladies' man. He's although he's not he's not a speciesist at all because he was once married to a scroll. So. Well, that's good to know. And he's of course made uh, you know scroll being one of them. You know, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But many, many poor choices in his female companions throughout the years. Yeah. Well, guess what? We're getting another one this time. He meets a girl at a club. It's this new place, and it's uh, some state of the art chain club called the Other Side of Zero. And it's kind of this new age, all-inclusive performance arts spa, uh, self-help shrine bar thing. And we've got this guy up on a podium preaching, essentially saying, Behold the words of the anti-priest. Equilibrium and thermodynamics have left you with no other choice. And this guy has a giant circle on his forehead with a a black space in, in the center and then a horizontal line, which anybody who knows anything about uh, Annihilus will probably recognize that as a, a negative symbol, or, or just people who are familiar with math in general. And of course, this guy, he's part of the negative zone, the cult of the negative zone, more specifically. So Johnny and this and this girl decide to get out of that bar. They head back to the Baxter building, and, and this story is all being told by Johnny to someone else, because we keep getting captions. And uh, the woman starts to appear to have an upset stomach, and... Uh, 
they walk past the negative zone portal, and she knocks Johnny down. She knocks him out, essentially. And uh, then her whole body starts going through some changes. First off, <laughs> she starts to bleed from the eyes, nose, and mouth. And then her body rips open, revealing a bunch, I think three or four, little, uh, what would you call those, members of the Annihilation Wave? Do they have a more specific name? Uh, just Annihilus Annihil- Bugs, I guess. Yeah. And they activate the portal, which is a bad thing in general. And uh, they're carrying a little device, which Johnny quickly recognizes looks like a bomb, and they jump through the portal. So Johnny takes it upon himself to go through and stop whatever ha- whatever's happening. And when he goes through, he sees a bunch of Blastar's forces and the Annihilus bugs and Annihilus ships and energy everywhere. And he says, I'm an idiot. Now, we should mention, so you had uh, you had in Marvel Cosmic, you had Annihilation, an, uh, Annihilation Conquest, and all that kind of stuff going there. And uh, during that time, Annihilus was killed, but of course, Annihilus being what he is, you know, he just grows a new body, and his consciousness goes into that new body, and uh, no big deal. But in the Negative Zone, which is his kind of place of, uh, of residence generally, while he was dead, Reed Richards set up this prison called 42 in the Negative Zone during Civil War. It was a place to put... Uh, uh, dissident superheroes, I guess you could say, and supervillains in this prison. That whole thing kind of went terribly, and now it's being ruled by Blastar, an old-school Marvel Cosmic villain who has crowned himself King Blastar and is controlling the Negative Zone. A lot of this played out uh, in Guardians of the Galaxy and a lot of really fun issues featuring Jack Flag and such, and uh, that is kind of the, the state we're in now. Eli- Annihilus is back he wants the negative zone, but it's being shielded by this energy source inside uh, 42, which has been taken over by Blastar. So the, bu- the bugs go through with the bomb to blow up the power source. Johnny tries to stop them. He fails. The Annihilation Wave comes swarming in through the now down barrier. Johnny start- heads back through the portal. And then, a couple pages into the issue, we get a wrap-up page. So that's weird. And we're told that the other side of Zero is the recruitment arm for an organization called the Cult of the Negative Zone. Uh, we're told about the, the current state of the portal and how it's the Mark III portal, some of the upgrades it's had. The Annihilation Wave Armada has been rebuilt to pre-crunch assault levels. A uh, state of war exists between the forces reborn. Annihilus and Blastar, self-described King of the Negative Zone, and the Level 42 Negative Zone Prison Station has been expanded into a... dot 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 or ellipses. And we have, uh, from off-panel, someone saying, Wait a second... We flip the page and we see that these little recap pages have not just been a little story conceit, they've been part of the story. This is Valeria Richards taking notes on an iPad about her family's adventures. And she asks Johnny, what was that again? And he says, I said they expanded the negative zone into a city. To which she replies, and that makes four. I guess that's settled. Four cities as foretold by future Franklin. <laughs> so Johnny tells her he got out of there, he closed the portal behind him, it was all fine. And so he says, why are you so interested in all this, Val? She says, you know me, Uncle Johnny, gotta keep learning, gotta feed the beast. He says, uh-huh, you sure there isn't something we should be concerned about? And in the cutest panel I've ever seen in a comic book ever, little Valeria, in her purple shirt with pink teddy bears on it, drinks from her juice box, or her cup of juice, and says, now, how would I know something like that? while giving the most innocent look ever at the camera. And her Uncle Johnny. I love Valeria Richards. She's yeah, awesome. Yeah, great character as written by Hickman, for sure. We then cut to the uh, the rulers of old Atlantis, and uh, the daughter of Atuma, Andromeda Atumason is sent as a, uh, with a message from Namor, uh, basically in defiance of them. Who are you to call yourself kings hiding here at the bottom of a frozen ocean? So they're like, oh yeah? Well, check this out. And much like the 
Fortress of Solitude scene in the original Superman the movie. Uh, their entire city protrudes uh, from the ice in this great giant panels and then culminating in a splash page. Also a lot like the uh, Forever City of the High Evolutionary, if he wishes back. Right. So that would be your fourth city. So you've got the underwater, or previously underwater, city of Atlantis. Uh, you've got the Inhuman City on uh, the moon currently. You've got the Prison 42 in the negative zone. And you have Old Atlantis. The Peak, as it's called. Delightful. So then we get this nice scene between uh, Reed and Johnny. Uh, where Johnny is kind of bummed out about, yet again, bringing back a woman to the Baxter building who turned out to be evil and almost screwing up everything. Reed tells Johnny, he says, hey, I love that you dive in head first, Johnny. We all do, but you have to start paying attention to go- what's going on. Everything is changing, Johnny. Everything and everyone. Basically tells him, you know, you have to ask yourself a question. What is it that you stand for? What do you stand for? You know, he basically is... Telling him not so many words to kind of assess some stuff and grow up a little bit, you know, instead of thinking uh, with his pants, as I mentioned earlier. <laughs> and we will see exactly what Johnny stands for probably next episode, or, yeah. or maybe the one after that. But well, even late, much, much later down the line, we see a whole different Johnny Storm in more ways than one. Mm-hmm. Um, we then go back to the blue area of the moon, and uh, the queen, the Chimelian queen, is looking down upon the light brigade. We finally get to see them, and they look awesome. They do look awesome. Um, led by a, a dark horse chameleon, and then there are two centauris, one Badoon, and two Dire Wraiths. One of which basically looks like Dire Wraith Johnny Storm, which is a really cool look. Right. They go up to Eldrak the door, and uh, the the main uh, chameleon says, Eldrak, give us a battle that we cannot win. Uh, the very best we have to offer, our most valiant, our sons and daughters... And so into the negative zone, the war of four cities begins. And As we see the Light Brigade fighting the Annihilation Wave in right. the negative zone. The war of the four cities. Bum, bum, bum. Issue 579 has Reed Richards on the cover. And uh, it's basically a close-up of him as what could be described as possibly a DNA strand emanates from his hand, kind of towards and then twisting away from camera. That's a cool, uh, cool image, larger than life. He keeps his feet in the ground, but keeps reaching for the stars. Um, we start off at a, um, a TED Talk type uh, retreat. Singularity 2010 in Golden, Colorado. Right, and it looks like it's in this big compound or what have you. Um, and Reed Richards is uh, giving the keynote address uh, to a crowd of incredibly smart people. And we see out in the crowd uh, Jennifer Walters, the She-Hulk, amongst some of them. This is a group that Reed founded of the world's smartest people to fix the world's biggest problems, basically. TED Talk style. He does single Jennifer Walters out for uh, a her her speech about um, you know the law in a, in a post human uh, society and how and that that was the kind of forward thinking he was kind of in trying to engender in making singularity, but then he calls out some other uh, speakers that had spoken you know, at this at the singularity event, uh, saying that you know one of them was politics masquerading as practicality. And the other one was just, uh, you know, like working toward a zero sum and just very truly disappointing. And then he realized what the problem was, that they've all grown old. And, and his speech here is just absolutely fantastic. Uh, and we, and we want, I want to read some of it word for word because it's just so good here. But he says, here at the end of human history, we sit on the verge of a transformative time. Never have we lived longer 
eaten better, worked less, or possessed more things. We are more advanced than any species that has ever walked the earth, and now, with our Promethean urge truly unleashed, we stand on the precipice of scientific marvels that will catapult us into the next millennium. Despite all this, evidence presented here suggests that most of you have never been more pessimistic for our future. You fear tomorrow. And uh, this has ticked him off. And, and he talks about some of the other speeches and, and how they're speeches of cowards who, who fear the future. And he says, The future of man is not one billion of us fighting over limited resources on a soon-to-be-dead planet, but one trillion human beings spanning an entire galaxy. The future of man is not here. It is out there. Because it's our new horizon. Because it's what's next. Standing here today, I am faced with questions. Do I want to be Magellan? Do I want to be Columbus or Cousteau or Armstrong? Or do I want to be you? There comes a time when each generation has outlived its usefulness and must be cast aside for a new one. It is with this understanding that I hereby resign from this body immediately. Because there is a fire called discovery burning within me. And I won't go back in the cave for anyone. To which I say, Amen, brother. Well, it's just very, it makes total sense that he um, would, would eschew like the, the total stagnate, stagnative quality of academia. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just very much part of his character, all about exploration. I mean, his, his their whole, you know, the whole origin of the character is because he wants to explore space. You know, it's just very much about, always, you know, Fantastic Four have always been about exploration, and especially in the Hickman's run. You know, we see them go from the center of the Earth to outer space to the depths of Atlantis, you know, and that's what really makes this team tick, and to see him kind of cast off that stagnation in favor of what he does do just makes perfect sense for the character, and it really, it goes beyond the characterization. Most people, right, of Reed Richards, is just like a, you know, super genius dick, you know? Right. It just really was cool to see him give this much, you know, this much of dimension to that character. Well, I love the refusal to be fatalistic in looking towards the future, and and it goes back to that kind of central mantra from um, Jonathan Hickman's book Shield, which was, "This is not how the world ends. Doesn't matter what you're faced with. This isn't how the world ends. It keeps going." And and Reed kind of embodying that, I just love it. Yeah, his angry optimism is very inspiring. Agreed. So the next week, uh, we're on top of the Baxter building where a ship has landed and dropped off Alex Power. Remember, he was offered that job by Reed uh, a, f- a few issues back during uh, Franklin's birthday party. And uh, he's told, well, he says to Reed, you know, I, I feel kind of dumb here, you know, compared to everybody else you've assembled um, and-, and what we're about to see in the issue. All-, all these people you've assembled, I'm the dumbest guy on the list. And he says, and Reed says to him, I can't think of a single person that would describe you as dumb. And, you know, Alex has the retort of, yeah, but if you sit, you know, a normal guy, even a smart guy down at a table with Einstein, etc., and Feynman and Hawking, and says, I got a perfect score on the SATs, you know, he's still the dumbest guy at the table. And Reed tells him, you know, you're the only person on this list who's been to another world, you have experience, perspective, and that's what you bring to the table. It's invaluable and it's necessary, and you're going to fit in. Makes good, I mean, a good point, too. I mean... Um, Alex might not be, you know, as smart as Valeria or whatever, but he is, you know, he's definitely genius level smart and he has the practical experience of having been in power pack, having to deal with all kinds of chaotic situations that couldn't be, you know, accounted for, explained or expected, you know, so. Then over in old Atlantis, the peak, uh, we, we get some kind of cryptic discussion between Sue and one of the Kings there. And, uh, she's told she's going to be given what she asked for. 
and we don't quite see what that is yet. But she will be given it by the kings of old Atlantis. And we also see some uh, Uhari children, uh, one of the races of old Atlantis. And it's not entirely clear here, but now that I'm rereading through this probably for the eighth time, I realize that this is where the two Uhari children, who will join up with the rest of the future foundation, come from. Because they're right here in this panel. Right. And then back at the Baxter Building in New York City, we get a nice quarter-of-the-page splash of Spider-Man th- swinging through the city, just as a little aside, right past the Baxter Building. And inside, we find the, the Moloid head that was put in a jar from the original Moloid episode, our issue, and then the other three Moloids who Ben Grimm saved, and they are discussing their fate and uh, saying that the humans say they could stay there as long as they want. They've taken all the furniture in the room, piled it in a corner, made like a fort out of it, and surrounded it with books. They said uh, they like it here because there are food and books. And they taught themselves to read yesterday. So awesome. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. And we get names for them. I simply will just admit now, I will never remember which one of the Moloids is which. But I believe Turg is the head in a jar. Mick is the one drawing on the window. And then Kor is one of the the bigger ones. And Tongs, I believe, the, the tiny one. Uh, the smallest of the group. Again, I won't remember this, but right. <laughs> that's what they are. And and Mick has dis- discovered science and math, etc., why they've been reading, and he tells him, did you know that a curved axis runs from the Forever City through a place called Old Atlantis to an inhuman city ship on the moon? And the radius of that axis happens to mirror the frequency at which a portal to the negative zone opens. What do we do with this information? <laughs> Does that mean anything to you? <laughs> and uh, basically they decide they're going to go to the Ben first, because they, they kind of worship Ben as a god because he saved them. Right. And if he thinks it's important, then they'll tell Reed. And then we get these interstitials that we were talking about before uh, from New World. Um, first of all, we find that uh, seventeen year, or at plus 17 years, uh, Ted Castle creates a time bubble to prevent him and everyone with the le- in the lab from being affected from the time-space distortion. Um, surrounding New World as it open as it goes around the singularity, um, then um, at plus one hundred and five years, he creates a synthetic uh, version of his girlfriend Alyssa Moy, uh, Moy two one one four, and he keeps iterating on them. Remember her her brain was the one that was in the jar spider robot thing that got crushed by psionics again. Dumb name, long torso for some reason, but uh, he keeps iterating on her anyway. Um, Ultron just keeps on going on, terraforming uh, outside of the of New World. Natalie X's brain keeps expanding as she absorbs more and more of the consciousness uh, consciousnesses of the people of New World. And then uh, Lord Lightwave, who's who's destiny to be the, the herald of Galactus, uh, sits around waiting for him, dreaming of serving him. And then New World plus 326 years, we see an older Banner Jr., and it says the music plays and Banner Jr. grows older. And and fatter, too, at least in the face. Yeah, he's growing out his hair. I don't like that look. He's got huge muscles, but he does look like a crazy old man. Yeah. We then go to karate practice at the Baxter <laughs> Building with um, Johnny Storm in the classic yellow uh, Bruce Lee suit. Uh, ben, Dragon Man, Valeria, Franklin, Leech, and Artie. And they're, they're discussing what would be the best catchphrases for Franklin to use. He rather likes time to die, buttheads, which I also think is at least appropriate for the character. And uh, Valeria is operating on Dragon Man's brain, trying to make him bigger, stronger, better, faster, etc. Meanwhile, Artie and Leech in Black Ninja uh, geese jump out and have a fight with uh, Franklin. It's awesome. I love the way... Artie uses his uh, projection helmet to show 
basically Ryu, I guess, or one of them from a Street Fighter type game with the with the button presses. Yeah, yeah, with a back forward punch down as it projects towards uh, towards Franklin. If it's not clear, I don't know my fighting games, but uh, it is a really cool uh, little moment. And Valeria keeps operating on Dragon Man. She hits the wrong thing, and all of a sudden he's spraying fire everywhere. And Artie uses his helmet again and basically does an exploded view of all the parts of Dragon Man's brain so she can figure out what's wrong. And uh, we see that uh, Artie's pretty darn smart and he's able to do these deconstructed, exploded views of uh, even simple objects like a ballpoint pen just as well as he can do a, a very complex machine like the brain of Dragon Man. There's a phrase you don't, see, you don't hear very often. Which, which phrase? Complicated like the brain of Dragon Man. <laughs> Well, it looks like the Death Star. Yeah, it does. <laughs> or Mother Box or something. Yeah. At Pavlov, which evidently is an acronym for something. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> it's a metahuman psychiatric facility. Uh, we we see uh, Bentley, the wizard, going crazy. And slobbering, which is apt for a place called Pavlov. Right, it looks like grinding his teeth, and it looks like every muscle in his body is tensed. Talking, you know, a lot of, like, pseudoscientific gibberish. If we remember from the last episode, Bentley, while a super scientific genius, has gone just absolutely insane, and seems to think that he's having conversations with God, and is basically some type of prophet which is very antithetical to his scientific views, but it's working in his crazy brain. The the two things, despite being very incongruous in the way he's espousing them, are fitting just perfectly for him. Plus, I mean, he's been wearing the wizard helmet for so long that, I mean, we'll see here that, you know, his eggs have been pretty scrambled by all this, you know, whatever kind of weird black science is going on in there to make him even smarter. You can't make a madman without breaking a few eggs. Or an omelet. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you do need a few crazy people for an omelet as well. For a good omelet. Anybody can make an average omelet. I have no idea what that means. Me either. <laughs> so uh, Reed Richards comes to visit him, and he thinks he has a way to help, uh, and he gives the wizard back his helmet. But Reed, Reed warns everyone, don't worry, I took out anything that was uh, particularly dangerous. But the, the helmet allows the wizard to focus, and they have a conversation. He puts the helmet on and says, born again, I really like that. Then, yes. uh, hello, Reed. So nice of you to drop by. Very Hannibal Lecter-ish there. Yes. It was very, it's very inspired by Silence of the Lambs. But, he, yeah, he seems a little more lucid anyway, you know. And uh, Reed basically wants to talk, try to, tries to tell him about number 32. But really, you know, Bentley goes, uh, Bentley, you know, the senior goes on and on. You know, we're on the road to Damascus, you and I. Everything is going to burn, you know. There will be no tomorrow, you know. Uh, it just goes on and on. And then Reed is just like, look. It makes me sad to see you like this. I found you know, that, that uncorrupted clone of yourself you made. He's living with me. I'm going to prove something to you and the world. I'm going to raise the boy no different from you, but I will make something better of him. I'm going to fix you, Bentley. Bentley seems horrified by this. You know, I am what I am. There's no avoiding you know, who I'm meant to be. And he's like, you're wrong. I'm going to offer him something you forsake. And they use the almost the same exact art from that panel to transition back to the Baxter building. It's it's a different art, but it's the same exact pose and everything, but different lighting and such. As uh, Reed is introducing the Future Foundation, which is all these smart, super genius kids from all over the world. And he tells them that he only teaches one class. That class is pass or fail. Welcome to the Future Foundation. Together, there is nothing we can't do. And we see it's Dragon Man, it's uh, Valeria Richards, this is two Uhari kids, it's the uh, the Moloids, Alex Power, Artie, Leech, 
Uh, although Artie is actually not in uh, this particular image, or Leech isn't, but and uh, Bentley number thirty-two at their little school desks. Yeah. And there ends the issue. Pretty cool shot there at the end, setting up, of course, the FF comic that spun out not too long after this. Right, right. Which is of my many, many favorite things about this run. One of my many favorite things. The kid characters, and again, this is from somebody who listeners will probably remember, really does not like children. Uh, those issues are awesome. All the stuff with the kids in these books is just fantastic. And then we will end tonight with issue 580. It's kind of a weirder, but a lot of fun uh, one-off issue, but it's also a really good place to end story-wise because some major stuff happens next time that starts off a whole new course of events, or it continues a whole new set of events in a new way. So uh, we start off with a character's hand holding an invitation, you are cordially invited to possibly the most impossibly awesome toy event ever. Join us uh, for the unveiling of this season's most anticipated toy line featuring the Impossible Man. And uh, Leech and Franklin are sitting on a couch, uh, and they're very bored, waiting to go to this toy launch. Yeah, I love the way they have the four panels there in a row, kind of showing you. He's <laughs> just bored. You say that again, and just like the... Just kind of, you know, setting that kind of silent panel in between, you know. You can That's, it's, a, it's a great beat to just let you know that, that that amount of time has passed, which is great. <laughs> and then Leach saying again, bored. Okay, let's go. Then we cut to Reed uh, addressing the Future Foundation, saying, you know, and I, I love this line, too, because it, it kind of, when, the, when you find out what it is, you know, I'm not sure if I could, should be insulted or extremely proud. Turns out that the the first you know the first project is something he did not expect them to uh, to pick, and something he has tried many times to do in the past but failed. Right, it was Mick who thought of it, Dad. You know, um, Valeria tells him, and then Franklin pulls on Reed's coat. Reed says, "Look, I'm I'm sorry. I know I can't go, but uh, I'll have to have your uncle Johnny take you, and I promise uh, you'll have a good. Yeah, I'll see you when you get back." And uh, you know, Valeria's like, "Bye, Franklin. Have fun." So then Johnny meets uh, Leech and. Uh, Franklin in the lobby of the Baxter building and says, look, you know, I know your dad, you know, your dad loves you, but he's really in the busy, uh, in the middle of this, but let's take a little revenge out of him. I've got his gold card. <laughs> and he lay, lays down a nice parallel of, I, I know you think your dad loves your sister more, but hey, my dad and my sister were also more similar than I was to my dad. It doesn't mean that he loved me any less or your dad loves you any less. It just means that Valeria and Sue were easier. But again, let's get revenge on him anyway by using his gold card and buying everything in the store. And this may just seem like a nice little character moment, but actually... What it's it, what, pretty darn important. It is important. It's one of the major themes that, that Hickman goes with in this whole thing. So they go to uh, Arcade's Toy Store, which is uh, pretty much the uh, the New York City Toys R Us, if anybody's ever been there. And it's very Marvel-themed. You've got a giant Spider-Man hanging from the ceiling and a an Iron Man and a big cat poster. And a big purple dinosaur in the background. Big purple T-Rex. And uh, they're going through the store. And all of a sudden, hey, look, Uncle Johnny, is that? And Johnny flames on and says, "Uh uh-huh, you two stay right here. And we flip the page to see Arcade standing there. But Arcade promises he's a new man. And who should pop up but one of my very favorite characters. Especially when used in in very small moderation. I think that might be redundant. But anyway, the Impossible Man. The Impossible Man shows up in a very hippie-ish, Jimi Hendrix-esque costume at first. He gives Johnny a hug. 
And then he turns back into his normal look and basically says, hey, Arcade has turned away from supervillainy. He's going to be a legitimate businessman businessman now. And we're going to have this whole toy line with me. And he turns into a Mr. Moneybags version of himself and says, uh, this is going to be perfect. We got this toy line. It's in, all the toys are imbued with my own impossibleness. I'm going to be a millionaire. It's going to be great. And Arcade promises that he's given up games of murder. He's done with death traps. Yeah, and that, that panel, you know, just, just made me say, right. <laughs> <laughs> then a few minutes later, they have the toy launch as uh, the Impossible Man turns into a version of Clark Kent slash Superman with a uh, eye logo where the uh, the Superman crest would be. He even, he even has the spit curl. It's a very nice look for the character. And they introduce the toy lines. You've got your Hulk hand style Impossible Fist with goose-smacking, smack-smacking peace enzyme. The lifelike miniaturized action figures with no points of articulation in the Forever Zen Impossipose. Or the Impossible Plushy Head Pillows, which when squeezed impart wisdom in my native impossibleness. Each comes with a small piece of me, which will go home with you, the impossible possible, at the impossible price of nineteen ninety-nine. So, good citizens, who wants one? And the kids go crazy. Yeah, they, they all want toys. But. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Arcade is actually up to his old evil tricks. And the moment the Impossible Man, using his own hands, transformed into scissors or a lobster claw of some type to cut the, uh, the ribbon, as soon as he does so, big sign falls down, hits the Impossible Man, knocks him out for a second, and uh, Arcade jumps up and says, Oh, God, that felt good. And, uh, you know, Johnny immediately flames on. I knew it. And then they are attacked by the Impossible Man toys. And there's even a giant Lego man who gets kind of demolished, which is a lot of fun. Leech gets knocked out, which is kind of important as uh, he's the only thing keeping Franklin's powers, uh, you know, on lockdown. So uh, him getting knocked out kind of uh, opens up Franklin to be able to do something. And the Impossible Man comes back. He, he says, Arcade, you're dangerously close to being in breach of contract. I fear I'm going to have to get litigious. Oh, no. <laughs> but the Impossible Man is attacked by all of his impossible toys, uh, looking just like him. And uh, Franklin? Franklin is not very happy when he sees that Leech has been knocked out. And we see some... I, are those technically Kirby dots? No, right? Because they're not black. Well, I mean, it's the same technique, just white. So inverse, let's call them inverse Kirby dots. There we go. He uh, he he shoots Arcade a look that uh, would make me uh, crap my pants probably, and says that wasn't very nice. Hey, Mister Arcade, if I were you, I'd look out for that dinosaur behind you. And Franklin, using his powers, causes the giant purple fluffy T Rex to come alive and chomp down on Arcade, Jurassic Park style. All that's missing is the Portageon. And if you've been to the uh, Toys R Us in Times Square, there is a giant T-Rex there. So I'm sure this is a reference in that. Right. Uh, that gives Johnny the opening to burn all the toys, which causes Impossible Man to go, No! You killed them! I heard them crying out a thousand screaming voices just like my own. Vox Popopi. End dramatic monologue. I want to thank the Academy, my attorney, and my agent as he transforms into a black and purple suit and tie holding a little uh, Oscar statue <laughs> to which Johnny goes so weird. It's funny that he says Vox Papa by he was the uh, the last inhabitant of the planet pop-up so that's the shout out to that. And of course in Latin Vox Populi is the voice of the people so this right. would be the voice of planet pop-up. The pop-up people. So Arcade is captured and uh, and the impossible man says oh I'll handle Arcade until the authorities arrive. I hope he likes spankings. 
and uh, the kids bid farewell, and Johnny asks him, uh, tell me what's your favorite superhero say, and the kids say, flame on. Of course, heading back to that to that ever-present battle in Johnny's head of he wants to be their favorite superhero instead of, of Spider-Man. Spider-Man, of course. Uh, then we also then we go back to these interstitials in New Earth. He perfected synthetic Moy twenty five fifteen and achieves total awareness, and through it, uh, the retrieval of the long forgotten, long since lost memories that belonged to the original Alyssa Moy, and she forgives Ted. Then New Earth plus 468 years, uh, believing his improved navigational system and specifically designed Moy Pilot can maintain the world ship New Earth's orbit around the singularity. Ted Castle dumps 640 years of knowledge into his brain and escapes to Earth along with Moy 2515. Then in New Earth, real time beyond the distortion, the Ultron Collective reaches its maximum population of 10 to the 9th power and concludes their terraforming effort. Planet Ultron is complete. Does not sound like somewhere I'd want to go. <laughs> no. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the Geth from uh, Mass Effect. Right. New Earth plus 820 years. Natalie X evolves into the total collective consciousness of the people of New Earth. Her body dies, and through that ultimate surrender, she gains control of the combined power of the collective. Natalie X becomes the New Earth world mind. Oh, That's good for her. <laughs> She was a class valedictorian, after all. <laughs> and then after that, we have uh, Lord Lightwave is restless at night. He dreams of you know, tomorrow, Spencer and Galactus, and all day he longs for the night. And then New Earth at plus 12, 17 years. As for Banner Jr., the music stops, and the maestro takes the stage. And we see this awesome version of Banner Jr. as the maestro, as depicted in uh, George Perez and Peter David's Future imperfect with the full beard, uh, mustache, you know, hundreds of years old. And I love that reveal too, because earlier on in this issue or the previous issue, I guess it was, where you have that, you know, the music starts. It's like, what the heck is that about? And having it tie in here as, oh yeah, music, maestro, duh, is is a nice, fun little reveal. One of my favorite Hulk stories of all time. I mean, just really classic, um, if you haven't read it. Future imperfect, I'm sure it's available on trade, or digitally, I'm sure. Everything's available digitally these days, pretty much. Except for a good pizza. One of these days, Jim, we will make it happen. Hey, 3D printers, man. You just have to fill, <laughs> fill them with dough. I'm working, I'm working on it. <laughs> uh, back at the Baxter building, we, we head back to the Future Foundation. Ben Grimm, the thing, has been brought in. They said, you're going to want to sit down for this, Ben. And uh, Reed says, go ahead, Val. And she says, so Uncle Ben, as you know, Dad created this special class for us. And just to see what we would come up with, he let us pick what we wanted our first group project to be. So we talked about it for a while, and we came up with some pretty cool ideas. Uh, Dragon Man says he suggested a massed energy converter. Uh, one of the Uhari says, I thought artificially generated perfect food was a pretty solid suggestion. And Bentley says, and I still think we should build a death ray. Val says, but it was the Moloids who decided our first project should be you. Hail Grimm, savior of the universe, say the Moloids. <laughs> my people. So what do I get? Super boots, a robot assistant? If you guys could whip me up one of those Sub-Zero personal coolers. And Valeria says, we figured out how to cure you, Uncle Ben. Sort of. And Ben quickly says, I don't have time for this. But Reed, Reed stops him and says, just, just listen. And uh, he says, Reed, you've been trying to fix me for years. And now you're telling me that a bunch of kids outsmarted the smartest man on the planet? Is that what you're saying? It is. See, the problem, one of the Molly says, was that Dr. Richards has always tried to cure you completely. When all of you were exposed to cosmic radiation, you were transformed at the genetic level. 
There is, however, one fundamental difference between all of you. Mr. Fantastic, the Invisible Woman, and the Human Torch all have a off-slash-on state. The on position is when you are power positive. Think of it as your natural resting state. You're never not that, Uncle Ben, and that's where Dad screwed up. Dr. Richards always tried to make you completely human again, and because the cosmic radiation completely changed you into the thing, that's like asking a dog not to be a dog or wood not to be wood. It works against the fundamental structure of what you are. So we attacked the problem from the opposite direction and came up with this, a cure of sorts. And Bentley says, we should clone him before he takes it. Just Yeah, I love that. When each of the others goes into an off state, it acts as a bleed for their cosmically charged cells, converting them to a perceived normal human state. If you had had something like this years ago, you probably would be able to change back and forth at will, or at least semi-regularly. Now, because of oversaturation, it's going to be a lot shorter than that. Ben wants to know how long. And Reed tells him, it, you know, it depends on a lot of things. He says, how long? And Alex tells him, you won't be able to control when you change. And Dragman says, you won't know pre precisely when you'll return to your on state. But Alex finishes, but we think about one week a year. And Ben says, I get to be normal for a whole week every year. And Valeria apologizes, I'm sorry I couldn't be more, Uncle Ben. And he says, I'll take it. And uh, they hand him the vial and say, congratulations, Mr. Grimm. You get to be human again. They give him a glowing green vial. Probably Ghostbusters technology, <laughs> I would imagine. And again, I love this close-up detail on Ben's face and hand. Just the structure and the shading and the shadows and everything. It's just, just gorgeous work. Good stuff. And thus ends the issue. And thus ends this episode of The Long Box of Doom. We'll be back soon for uh, the third part of Hickman's Fantastic Four, continuing on Fantastic Four Teen, and we hope you will join us again for that episode and the ones to come after it. But until next time, you can leave us a voicemail at 972-798-3830. That's 972-798-3830. Or send us an email, LOD at HHWLOD.com. Check out all of our great shows like Half Hour Wasted on Mondays, uh, The Long Box of Doom, which you're already listening to now, Real Heroes, The Black Box, Out Now, Jersey Shore, The Ichapod Cranecast, Jim's Action Lab Podcast, and many, many more, and The Walking Dead TV Podcast. You can find all of those at hhwlod.com. You can check out our Facebook groups for the shows as well on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at LODTweet and at HHWLOD underscore network. Jim is at Yoda Jones, and I'm at Jordan FRM Jersey. So uh, until we return back to Fantastic 14 and uh, the awesome adventures of Hickman's Fantastic Four and FF, have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye. I feel fantastic, and I never felt as good as how I do right now Except for maybe when I think of how I felt that day When I felt the way that I do right now, right now I feel fantastic, and I never felt as good as how I do right now Except for maybe when I think of how I felt that day When I felt the way that I do right now, right now, right now by the way, I don't know if you saw it or not, but are you, have you ever seen Epic Meal Time? Do you know what Epic Meal Time is? Yeah. Okay. Yes, I, I subscribe to that. I subscribe to Handle It. They just did a segment with Arnold Schwarzenegger with a tank. Like, I guess Schwarzenegger owns a private tank. Like an actual patent class from the 1960s tank. Doesn't surprise me. So they cook ostrich eggs on the engine block of the tank. Nice. And then Sauce Boss gets in the, like, the other driver's seat with Arnold and they take it for a spin. Is the ostrich thing a, I was going to say Australia, Austria pun, but no, the ostriches are not Australian, they're African. No, it's just a giant friggin' egg. <laughs> nice. Use it, the, um, the, uh, the, the recipe that uh, episode is the steak and egger. 
<laughs> and it's like an insane amount of steak and eggs, of course, all baked in a giant biscuit dough that like, of course, they, I mean, I love that just for for the food porn aspect of it. Just like, damn, right. they actually did that, you know? It's, it's stuff that we would talk about doing in my kitchen but could never do or wouldn't sell. You know what I mean? Well, did you see the one they posted the other day with the Trailer Park Boys? Mm-hmm. Which I was like, I still in my queue. I haven't actually watched it, but I'm like, well, that's weird. I mean, yes, they're all Canadian, but that's just a strange pool. And then I realized like the next day, oh, because it's in... A conjunction with Netflix announcing they're bringing back Trailer Park Boys for two more seasons. Yeah, uh, Hard uh, Hardwick was on there too. Did an episode like a Star Wars. I think it was Tauntaun Barbecue. I think I saw that one. And oh, somebody else too. I can't think. Oh, um, that the comedian. I'm I'm not fat. I'm fluffy. I can't remember. Oh, Gabriel that. Iglesias. Yes, he was on an episode of it recently too. So I guess celebrities are getting hip to the epic meal time, which is kind of sad because. I remember when I first saw fast food lasagna, I'm just like, these guys are genius. <laughs> I want to watch everything they do. Because it's the kind of stuff that, like, chefs and line cooks talk about doing, you know. But like, right, right. But the food cost on that is so much, it's like, it costs hundreds of dollars to do one of those things. So. You're anyway, too bad, Revenue. I digress. But yeah, them and Schwarzenegger in a tank. and. Okay, issue 573 is where we're starting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll start us off. You, uh, t- uh, Fantastic February into Fe- Fantastic 14. <clears throat> you want to talk something Action Lab? I do. Uh, I'll introduce the concept of New World. Uh, maybe you can even set me up for that in some way. It uh, doesn't need to be anything fancy, but just so, what's this New World type thing or whatever? Well, you, it's up to you. you, you know, you're an adult. You can figure it out. Um, Thanks. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> it's been a weird day. 